Hi, my name is Abigail. The Old Testament reading is found in Jonah 3.10 uh, to 4.4. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, Is it right for you to be angry? The word of the Lord. Good morning. My name is Carolyn. The New Testament reading is found in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 25 through 32. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. The word of the Lord. Thank you for standing. My name is Jim Cole, and we're going to do the, I'm going to do the gospel reading, which is found in Matthew 18, 21 through 22. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times, Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times, the gospel of the Lord. Let's remain standing as we pray. So, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would open our hearts this morning, that as we hear your word, that you would work in us, that you would allow us to be able to think of the places where you want to change us, that we'd leave from this place encouraged because it is you who are forming us into the image of your Son. We pray these things in his name, Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we're in for a special treat this morning. We get to have one of our own, a New Life downtowner, and also one of my dear friends uh, speaking to us this morning. Um, Dr. Adam Pelzer has taught a number of our Sunday school classes that we've done uh, over the last year or so. He, um, ha five, six years ago or so, earned his PhD in philosophy and is kind of an expert in the subject of how emotions connect to virtues. And so we thought this would be a, a perfect series for him to jump in and speak on. Adam and his wife Katie and their kids are a wonderful family and a, a vital member of our church. And so I want you to receive them uh, with, with open heart and with trust. Uh, Adam works as a, he's a professor at the Air Force Academy, and uh, he's a professor of philosophy there, a civilian professor, but I have to say this morning that nothing he says this morning is on behalf of the Air Force or the government of the United States of America. So he's just speaking as a fellow <laughs> follower of Jesus this morning. So please welcome Dr. Adam Pelzer. Right. Thank you, Glenn.
Thank you. Well, good morning, everybody. It's a real honor to be here. It was an honor to be asked uh, to preach uh, one, of the, one of the sermons in this series on emotions. Uh, I think this is a powerful series and um, hopefully uh, one that uh, is really touching many of you uh, in, in many important ways in your spiritual life and in your journey. As Glenn said, uh, I study philosophy. Uh, I'm a professor of philosophy. I started studying philosophy because I found it to be so enriching for my faith. It actually helps to deepen my faith. Um, and for me, has been really spiritually edifying in many ways, and in no way uh, uh, more so than in uh, my study of the emotions. Uh, when I first started studying the philosophy of the emotions, I found uh, that this was really helped me to understand my own heart uh, better, uh, the hearts of others better, and also how I might uh, grow uh, in, in my emotional maturity, in my spiritual maturity. Now, that being said, I haven't got it all figured out, <laughs> uh, especially with respect to anger. Uh, Glenn didn't ask me to come up and preach uh, this morning because he knew I was the, the person who had gentleness most figured out in the congregation. Uh, my son, who's sitting here in the front row, he can tell you that's definitely not, uh, not the case. Um, but... Uh, but there's good news. Um, the good news is that I know I'm not alone in struggling some with anger. Uh, and in fact, as we saw from the, uh, from the passage that was read this morning from the Old Testament, uh, those of us who struggle with anger are in the company of a prophet. So you, many of you know the story of Jonah. Uh, my, my daughter, who's four years old, she knows the story uh, from VeggieTales. As I was prepping the sermon earlier this week, uh, she heard me talking about Jonah, and she said, Daddy, why are you always thinking about TV shows for your work? <laughs> and of course, most of us know the bit about Jonah saying, God, no, I do not want to go preach to the Ninevites. God calls him to preach to the Ninevites, and, and Jonah says, no, I don't want to go, and tries to get away from God, right? That didn't work out very well. He tries to get away from God. Why does he try to get away from God? Well, the Ninevites, they're, they're a nasty bunch, right? This is the capital city of Assyria. This is a, 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 an enemy of the nation of Israel. Um, as far as sinners go, they, they were thought of as just about the worst. And God says, Jonah, I want you to go preach to the Ninevites, and I want you to tell them that destruction is coming because of their evil ways. They are going to be destroyed. Go tell them that, Jonah. Jonah says, well, God, that doesn't sound like a lot of fun. First of all, I have to go to Nineveh. And Nineveh is kind of far away. It's a big city. It's going to take me like three days to walk across it. It's hot there, right? And while I'm walking across it, I'm going to be telling them all that you're going to destroy them for their evil ways, right? I'm going to be like the least popular person in Nineveh, right? And we already know how evil they are, so there's a good chance this doesn't end well for me, right? Jonah knows that prophets often end up meeting their death. So he tries to flee. He gets caught in a storm on a ship. The fellow sailors figure out that he's the reason for the storm. He gets thrown overboard, swallowed up and sits in the belly of a great fish for three days to cool off 
and to get his head straight and to realize that he should probably listen to God. The fish spits him out. God says, Jonah, go to Nineveh. And this time, what does Jonah say? That sounds good, right? It sounds better than being in the belly of a fish for three days. So this time he goes to Nineveh and he preaches and he says, God is going to destroy you. Destruction is coming because of your evil ways. And what happens? The Ninevites, these these evil, wicked people, enemies of Israel, they repent. They say, well, maybe, maybe if we repent, maybe if we fast, the king says to everyone, Fast for three days. Don't eat anything. Right? Don't drink anything. Put yourself in sackcloth and ashes. Let's show God just how sorry we are for our evil ways. And then God decides to forestall their destruction. God decides not to destroy them because of their repentance. That's the end of the story, right? Oh, if it were a fairy tale, that would be the end of the story, right? If the author of the book of Jonah was trying to make Jonah look really good, that might be the end of the story. But it's not a fairy tale, and that's not how the story ends. Jonah is furious. He's furious with God. He says, God, I knew this is what you were going to do. I knew that you were slow to anger and abounding in love. I knew it. That's why I didn't want to go. Because I knew you might just forgive these Ninevites. Why doesn't he want them forgiven? Well, for one thing, they're enemies of Israel. He doesn't realize that God's plan of salvation isn't just for the nation of Israel. That it's for the whole world. Jonah hasn't figured that out yet. Much like many of the Jews in Jesus' day still hadn't figured this out. And also, this doesn't really make Jonah look great, right? I mean, he just came and said, you're going to be destroyed for your evil ways. And they repented, and then no destruction came. He might have been worried he was going to be looked at as a false prophet. So Jonah is angry with God. But what is anger? We can see a bit of it in this story about Jonah. Anger is a concerned perception of an offense. Glenn's used the phrase that uh, Paul's phrase, St. Paul's phrase, that uh, emotions are eyes of the heart. They're ways of seeing things, right? They reveal to us things about the world. They reveal information to us about the world. Anger is like that. Anger is a perception. It's a perception of an offense, And it's grounded in a concern for justice. And if you don't care about justice, you'll never get angry. But most of us care about justice. We especially care that we get justice. (laughs) So we get angry a lot. Anger is a concerned perception of an offense, and it's grounded in a concern for justice. And when we get angry, we desire that the person who's offended the person who's committed the injustice, be punished. Anger puts us in the judgment seat. When we're seeing somebody through the eyes of anger, we're seeing them from the seat of the judge. And we're saying, shame on you 
for that thing that you've done, for that injustice you've committed, that offense you've committed, that wrong that you've done. Shame on you, you deserve to be punished. And if I have to, I'll be the one to punish you. That's what anger is. So anger is this concern, perception of an offense. And as such, anger can be a good thing. Sometimes we need anger because there are real injustices in the world that need to be righted. There are wrongs that need to be set right. And sometimes the right thing to do is to get angry about those things because that can motivate us to do something about it, to fix the problem, to fix the injustice. But unfortunately, anger doesn't always behave that way. So while anger can be a righteous response to injustice, far too often it is a self-righteous response to an inconvenience. What were Jonah's inconveniences? Well, he had to go on a trip to Nineveh. Maybe his prophetic reputation was at stake. Then there's this interesting bit at the end of the story of Jonah where he gets inconvenienced by a plant that grows up and is providing him shade, and then the plant goes away, and he gets angry about that. Let me read to you. This is the rest of the story of Jonah, the one they usually don't tell in the children's Bibles. Let me read to you a bit uh, from Eugene Peterson's The Message paraphrase of Jonah uh, about this situation with the plant. So God said, what do you have to be angry about? But Jonah just left. He went out of the city to the east and sat down in a sulk. He put together a makeshift shelter of leafy branches and sat there in the shade to see what would happen to the city. God arranged for a broad-leafed tree to spring up. It grew over Jonah to cool him off and get him out of his angry sulk. Jonah was pleased and enjoyed the shade. Life was looking up. But then God sent a worm. By dawn of the next day, the worm had bored into the shade tree and it withered away. The sun came up, and God sent a hot, blistering wind from the east. The sun beat down on Jonah's head, and he started to faint. He prayed, I'm better off dead. Then God said to Jonah, what right do you have to get angry about this shade tree? Jonah said, plenty of right. It's made me angry enough to die. God said, what's this? How is it that you can change your feelings from pleasure to anger overnight about a mere shade tree that you did nothing to get? You neither planted nor watered it. It grew up one night and died the next night. What's God saying here? He's saying, this is no injustice. You didn't deserve this plant. You had no right to this plant. And yet you're getting angry about it. So, God says, why can't I likewise change what I feel about Nineveh from anger to pleasure? This big city of more than 120,000 people who don't yet know right from wrong to say nothing of all the innocent animals. That's the end of the story of Jonah. So we see that anger is a perception of an injustice, an offense. But when you perceive an injustice or offense, what what you're seeing is that a right has been violated. That's what you're seeing. But all too often, we see rights where we don't really have them. We see injustices where really we're just being inconvenienced. Henry David Fairley is an agnostic uh, social commentator and journalist uh, who uh, wrote a book um, which he talked a little bit about anger. And he said that the reason we live in an angry culture, that we live in an angry age, is because we have an overblown sense of individual rights. 
We see injustices where there are none. And that makes us angry. Because when those injustices get violated, we get angry. We treat every felt need, every desire of ours, we treat as a right. In fact, we go so far as to think that we have a right to happiness. We think happiness is a right of ours. Is it? We don't deserve happiness. Now, we deserve other people not to get in the way of our pursuing happiness in certain ways, right? But, but we don't deserve happiness. We have no right to happiness. In fact, as sinners who have made ourselves enemies of the holy God who created the universe, we better be really careful when we start demanding what we deserve, right? Better be really careful about demanding what we think we have a right to. But we think we have rights where we don't have any. In fact, we think we have this right to happiness. Here's what uh, C.S. Lewis said about a right to happiness. He said, at first, this sounds as odd to me as a right to good luck. For I believe that we depend for a great deal of our happiness or misery on circumstances outside all human control. A right to happiness doesn't, for me, make much more sense than a right to be six feet tall or to have a millionaire for your father or to get good weather whenever you want to have a picnic. Yet our culture tells us that we have a right to be happy, that we deserve to be happy, and in fact, that everyone else owes us happiness, especially in our relationships. This is how anger can harm relationships. Anger is perhaps the number one cause of death for relationships. It ruins marriages. It ruins friendships. It severs the familial ties between brother and sister, between daughter and mother, between father and son. Anger anger is a destructive emotion. It is. It's a destructive emotion. And it leaves relationships as its fatalities. How does it do this? Well, it builds up walls. It isolates us, right? When we're seeing someone else as an offender, when we're seeing someone else as having committed an injustice, especially an injustice against us, that's all we can see about them. It's like, have you ever been in a room with a black light, a dark room with a black light? What happens to the white clothing or teeth if, if, if you've been brushing well? Um, some people's teeth might not light up in a black lead room. What happens to them? They glow, right? They, they get bright. They stand out. You almost can't look at anything else. That's all you can see is the things that are white. Somebody's wearing a white t-shirt. It's just, you don't notice anything else. Everything else is dark. But the white things in a black lit room, they, they, they glow. This is like what it is when we're angry. We see the other person, and all we can see is the offensiveness. All we can see is how they've committed an injustice, the wrong that they've done. That's all we see. We don't see their preciousness. We don't see that they're a child of God. We don't see that they're one for whom 
Jesus died on the cross. We don't see that. All we see is the offensiveness. And sometimes we need to clue in on the offensiveness because sometimes it needs to be corrected. But more often than not, more often than not, we are blowing the offensiveness out of proportion. Maybe there's no offense there at all. And yet we see it and we zero in on it and then we look for confirming evidence of it. Right? Say, oh, you did this injustice to me and now let me find other ways that you're offending me. Right? And that makes us even more angry and makes us feel even more righteous in our judgment seat. Right? This is how anger gets in the way of relationships and we build up these walls and then, and then, and then what happens is if we do start to get the sense that maybe we were a little bit too angry, maybe we blew this offense out of proportion, now it would really take a lot of humility to back down, right? So we just keep it up. We dig in our heels. We dig in our heels and we keep being angry. It's actually a little embarrassing as I was thinking about illustrations to share for this sermon. Um, I was able to come up with quite a few just from the last week or two in my own life uh, of, of sinful anger. Um, and, and, and here's one. So uh, a couple of weeks ago, we were at a, uh, a dance recital for my daughter. Uh, many of you actually were there. There were quite a few New Life downtowners there. Um, the rest of you were here working and beautifying the, the ground. So thank you to those of you who were here and not at the recital. Um, those of you who were, were at the recital, this was, a, this was a crowded event. It was in a high school auditorium, uh, uh, much, like, much like this one. A lot of uh, uh, young dancers there and, and their families there to watch them. And it was crowded getting in, and my wife had to take uh, our daughter, Naomi, in uh, to, the, to the back room so that she could get ready for her performance. And as she took her into the back room, uh, she, she sent me a text and said, okay, you should come in because it's busy here. You should come in with Caleb, our, our one-and-a-half-year-old, and you should get a seat. I said, okay, I'll do that. And she said, well, there's a line. And I came in, and it was very crowded, and there was a long line to get in because they hadn't opened the doors yet for the recital. And uh, they, they eventually did open the doors, and everybody started flooding in, and everybody was getting seats. And I was pushing a stroller and holding Caleb, our one-and-a-half-year-old, because he had given up on being in the stroller. I was pushing it through this crowd to try and get into the, uh, to the, to the recital hall. And I went and found some seats... And I stood there, and I'm trying to text my wife saying, I don't know where she's performing. I don't know if these are good seats. I don't know where I'm supposed to be. Where are you? Why haven't you come back yet? Right? I'm standing there. I'm holding a baby in one arm. I've got a stroller. Right? I'm trying to save some seats, and I don't know if I'm doing a good job, and I'm worried I'm going to get in trouble because I'm not in the right spot Right? that's going to get the, the best pictures. And so Katie, my wife, she comes in and she says, sorry, Naomi was a mess. You know, she w didn't want me to leave. And she comes in and finds me and I, and, and I get angry. Where were you? Why didn't you come faster? How dare you leave me in this situation where I had to find seats for the recital by myself with a baby in my arm? My rights have been violated. My rights to a convenient Saturday morning full of peace and relaxation have been violated. Of course, this didn't go over very well. 
Uh, then she, she rightly then got a little angry at me. <laughs> why, why are you getting so upset? Right? Uh, at that point, I had uh, done an injustice, done a wrong. And of course, we could have let this fester. In fact, it, it did kind of go on for a little bit. There was a little bit of a distance between us uh, for, for the next few minutes as the recital started. Um, but we were able to then look and smile at each other and, and, and forgive and move on. Uh, but that's, it doesn't always end that well, does it? It doesn't always end that well. In fact, um, once in college, I had a fight with a roommate that where I got very, very angry about something that at best was mildly insensitive. It was not an injustice done against me. And that fight really got in the way of our having a good relationship for many years, for a long time. It gets in the way. It kills relationships. In fact, it's so dangerous for relationships that there's a tradition in Christian theology that has considered anger or wrath one of the seven deadly sins one of the capital vices. It's not considered one of the deadly sins because if you're an angry sort of person, you can't go to heaven, or God's going to punish you more severely than people who suffer from other sinful conditions. That's not why it's considered one of the deadly sins. It's considered a deadly sin because it, it takes hold in our hearts and chokes out our love for God and for our neighbors. It chokes out our love. It kills our spiritual life. That's what anger can do. And it can destroy our relationships. So, angrily demanding our rights leads to spiritual death and fractured relationships. But there's good news. Jesus offers a better way. He offers a better life. While angrily demanding our rights leads to spiritual death and fractured relationships, I could get the rest on the screen, dying to ourselves leads to spiritual life and a flourishing community of flourishing relationships. Right? That's the paradox of the Christian life. Rather than demanding our rights, we are called to lay down our lives. Rather than trying to get what we deserve and looking out for number one, we are to follow Jesus in laying down our lives for the sake of others, for the sake of peaceful relationships. And that by doing that, we can have true spiritual life and a flourishing community. So what does anger and forgiveness look like in the Christian life? Well, first of all, Christians are called to reflect God's heart by being slow to anger. This is what Jonah said to God. I know that you are slow to anger and abounding in love. And this is what Christians are called to be. James tells us, be quick to hear and slow to speak. Slow to anger because the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Right? We're to be like God. We're to be slow to anger. We're not to be on the lookout for offenses the way the world tells us to be. The world says, be on the lookout for ways that people might be offending against you. Be on the lookout for injustices done to you. Right? 
And this is what leads to anger. And if you're not convinced that we have a cultural problem with this, right, just turn on some political news or go to a political rally. You don't even have to go to politics to find anger, though. All you really have to do is go to a crowded parking lot during Christmas shopping season, right, or a youth sports event, right, or, or worse, a crowded church parking lot on Christmas Eve or Easter, right? That's all you have to do to see the amount of anger that we have in our culture. And Christians aren't to be on the lookout for these offenses, right? We're, we're to be on the lookout for ways that we may have offended others. Jesus tells us, don't look at the log, but don't look at the speck in your brother's eye when you might have a log in your own, right? Pay attention to your own offenses first. Proverbs says this, good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. His glory to overlook an offense. This is countercultural, folks, right? We're told it's our glory to go out and find offenses and get angry about them, right? Get as angry as you can about them. That's what the world tells us. But the Bible tells us to overlook offenses. Be slow to anger. One of the ways that we can be slow to anger is by learning to act physically in ways that help us to see the preciousness of others. You start to get angry, place a hand on, gently on the person that you're angry with. Right? Maybe kneel down if it's a child, look in their eye, talk softly, because emotions are embodied. They're part of our bodily experience as human beings. And when we change our bodily posture, we can actually help to tra transform our emotions. Another thing that we can do is that we can maybe pray a prayer like the Jesus prayer of the Eastern Orthodox Church. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner, when we start to get angry. Why, Why does that help? Because it helps to helps me to not feel like I'm quite, quite so high in my judgment seat. <laughs> Remember that I, too, am a sinner and in need of forgiveness. And we also need to remember that we have been forgiven much, and that as we have been forgiven much, so, too, we ought to forgive much. When Peter comes to Jesus and says to him, how many times should I forgive my brother who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus says, no to 77 times. Many translations uh, have this 70 times 7. 7 was a number of completion, a number of fulfillment in the Hebrew mind, right? The seventh day is the Sabbath day, right? It's a day of rest. Every seven years was a Sabbath year. Every seven, seven years, every 49 years, they would then have a Sabbath rest followed by the Jubilee, the year of Jubilee when debts were forgiven, right? Saying not seven times, but seven times 70 times. So what does that mean? Does that mean we should take out our notebooks and keep track, right? Well, you sinned against me this many times. And it's been 490, right? This is the last time I have to forgive, right? <laughs> Depending on which translation you prefer of the, of the numbers here, maybe you can stop at 77, right? And on number 78, right, now you can stop. Of course, that's not what Jesus is saying. We're not to keep track. We are to forgive abundantly, infinitely, right? 
That's how many times, right? Seventy times seven was sort of like the Hebrew way of saying an infinite amount of times. That's how many times. Not seven times, Peter, but an infinite amount of times. And then Jesus goes on to tell the parable of the unforgiving servant. He says, imagine a servant who owes his master much. The master forgives it, but then the servant goes out and finds someone who owes him a little bit and throws him in jail and treats him harshly until he pays him back every cent that he owes. This doesn't go well when the master finds out. He says, this is what the kingdom of heaven is like. We need to remember that we've been forgiven much, and so we too must forgive much. Now, forgiveness begins with the commitment to put away anger. But forgiveness does not deny that a wrong was done. That's an important thing to remember. In forgiveness, we don't We don't deny that an injustice was done. In fact, forgiving someone actually requires that we recognize that an injustice was done, that a wrong was done. But we choose to work on not seeing that person only in terms of their offense anymore. We choose to see them as brother or sister. We choose to see them as loved one. We choose to see them as precious child of God. That's what forgiveness begins with. This emotional perception being transformed. Not a judgment that no wrong was done. In fact, I actually think this is a reason why, you know, many people, when they are apologized to in our culture, like to say, it's okay. Instead of, I forgive you. Why is I forgive you harder? Because I forgive you recognizes that an injustice was done, but that I'm willing to move on now and no longer see you only in terms of the offense you've committed. Saying it's okay makes it sound like, well, I'm not really going to make a judgment about whether an injustice was done. It's okay. Let's just move on. No, that's not true reconciliation. That's not really true uh, bringing the relationship back. So how can we forgive? Well, Ephesians tells us, here's a good practical strategy. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Don't let your anger fester. Right? That's one way in which we can forgive because as we let it fester, we just, it just, the offense becomes larger and larger in our emotional vision, right? As we let it fester. And so don't let it fester. Deal with it. Have a conversation about it, right? Try to work through it. That's one uh, practical strategy. Another is to remember God's forgiveness of our sins. Remember the parable of the unforgiving servant. Remember how much we've been forgiven, right? How can we, sinners who have been forgiven by a holy God who we made ourselves enemies of, how can we turn then and not forgive those who have done injustices against us? And another just useful strategy is that God's question to Jonah should be our question for ourselves. Is it right for you to be angry? There's two ways to read this question. Is it right for you to be angry? Is anger the appropriate emotion? Is this really an injustice or are you just being inconvenienced? Are your rights really being violated here or are you just a little grumpy? Is it right for you to be angry? But another way to read this question is, is it right for you to be angry? You 
who has been forgiven so much, is it right for you to be angry? Maybe an injustice was committed against you, and maybe it needs to be addressed. But is it right for you to harbor anger in your heart when God has put away his anger toward you? This passage from Ephesians 4 uh, that was read this morning comes in the context of Paul talking about the new life that's available to us in Jesus Christ. The name of our church is New Life. We have a new life. We can be a witness to the world. How countercultural would it be if all of us, if we were slow to anger with one another? with our family members, with our political opponents, with our coworkers. How countercultural would it be if we forgave, we're quick to forgive, we're quick to put away anger for even those who had offended us in serious ways? I think if we could live like that as a church community, people would notice, people would say, What's different about these people that they don't demand their rights but instead die to themselves and then have flourishing, peaceful relationships with one another where they can recognize each other's faults and get past them? How amazing would that be, church? How wonderful for us. How wonderful for us. And what a witness to the world of the truth of the gospel and of the power of the Holy Spirit. So this morning I want to close by saying the words of Paul to the Ephesians, but not as a command, but as a blessing. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you.